Hey, good morning, Central Assembly. Uh, man, it is great to be here with you in person. Uh, many of you know that I tend to host our online services that are happening right now on Sunday mornings, so it's not often that I, I, I get to be in the room with everybody. So this is, this is awesome. And uh, in case you didn't know, we have an amazing online community, uh, men and women and families that join in from uh, all over the United States, all over the world, and that are faithful every week to show up to worship with us, to hear from God's word together with us. So I want to give a big shout out to our online congregation. Hey, guys, uh, we love you. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not in the chat box with you today, but this is what I look like besides just my name. And uh, yeah, I, I'd say it's great to see you, but it's great to be seen by you. And uh, we're so grateful that, that you've chosen to be a part of the Central Assembly family. I um, also want to uh, thank Pastor Jim as he's uh, traveling and on vacation this weekend for the opportunity to come and, and get to speak to you today. It's, it's an incredible honor to be here with you. And a shout out to my wife as well, my amazing wife, Esther. Thank you, Esther. You know that uh, if, if you weren't there making sure that I wasn't a scattered mess, uh, nothing would be possible. Uh, guys, she has to remind me to eat sometimes. It's just like, Daniel, it's dinner time. You have to do this or you'll die. And so thank you for taking care of me and for being my partner in life and ministry because there's no one else I would rather do this with. I love you. Um, so, if you have a Bible with you today, or if you have a device that you use to read the scriptures, uh, open with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be skipping around, jumping around a lot, so if you have uh, notes uh, from the, the lobby, you can see some of the verses that we'll be looking at, because as, as you saw this morning, we're talking about the church of the future and becoming the church of the future. And as the, the college and young adults pastor here at Central uh, Esther and I, we, we get a lot of opportunities to talk about the future. Uh, we have a, a lot of conversations with students and graduates, 20-somethings, talking about what's coming next and, and what's uh, down the road. But I want to clear up just kind of a misconception that sometimes creeps in because today's message isn't only uh, about them. And it's not just about the, the youth and, and, uh, uh, the, that, that are here with us and the kids that are across the lobby. Uh, many times we have this idea that, you know, grown-ups are the church of today and kids are the church of the future. And there's a kind of dichotomy. And I love saying grown-ups because I've heard that real grown-ups don't call themselves grown-ups. And so if I keep saying that term, then I can hold on to my youthfulness as long as possible. Um, but that, that's not really the reality because everyone here today, everyone watching online is the church of today. We are all part of what God is doing right here and right now. And in the same way, all of us are the church of the future because everything that we're doing is shaping what the church is going to look like a year from now or five years from now, beyond. Everything that we're doing is playing a part in making the church of the future. Altogether, we are becoming that church as well. And so we begin in Matthew chapter 16, I want to read verse 18, 
where Jesus makes this, this powerful declaration when he's talking to his disciples. He says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And many times uh, there's a lot of like theological discussions about the first part of that statement uh, about, you know, what is the rock? Jesus says on this rock I'm going to build my church. Is that, uh, is, is that Peter because his name is Petros, which means rock? Is, is it all of the disciples and, and Peter's somehow kind of the leader of the disciples? Or is Jesus talking about the, the statement of faith that Peter had just made when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Which one of these things is the rock? And my answer to that is yes. Yes, they are. Um, all of these play a role in the building of Jesus' church, the foundation that Jesus has laid. It's the confession of faith by which every person who is a Christian, who is a member of Christ's church, enters in to that family. And it's also the writings and the teachings of the apostles and the authority that he gave to Peter and, and the 12 that they would be able to help the church grow, that Jesus would work through them to build his church. And so there's a lot of uh, discussions about that aspect, but I don't want us to miss what I think is the crucial part, and that's Jesus saying that he will build his church. Jesus builds his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together to hear your word. And we thank you that when we gather, you meet us, that you make us aware of your presence, moving among us, working inside of us, speaking to us, not just our heads, but our hearts as well. And Lord, I just pray that in this time we have together that we would encounter you, that we would be shaped by you, that we would be transformed by you, that we would surrender whatever plans, whatever agendas, whatever goals that, that we may have carried with us, that we would lay them at your feet and that, God, we would just ask you to build us, build us into the church that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I mentioned that Esther and I, we, we get to talk with students a lot about the future. And not all of those conversations are about, like, sci-fi stuff, like space travel and Elon Musk's, you know, colonizing Mars or whatever. Uh, not all of them, just some of them. Uh, but the majority of those conversations are the more mundane things about, you know, where, uh, what are your plans after, after school, after graduation? Uh, what are you going to be doing for a job this year? Uh, things that often fall under what we call a five-year plan. And we, we talk with students about, um, you know, grad school applications and job searches in new cities and what are their goals, what are their dreams, what are the things that they're wanting to accomplish. And many times whenever we ask the question, so what, what's your plan? What, what are you doing after graduation? The passionate response that we get is, I have no idea. And that's okay. <laughs> that, is, that is perfectly okay. Um, five-year plans, 
I got to say, I've come to have a very ambivalent set of feelings toward five-year plans. Um, Because every time that I make one, reality stubbornly refuses to follow my plan. And I'm like, universe, what's the deal? I wrote this down. I got it notarized. This is legit. You need to fall in line and make these things happen. And unfortunately, it it doesn't always work that way. And so it's good that I've discovered that it's good to have dreams and, and goals, things that can help us to have a direction that we want to move toward And that can prevent us from just sort of floating through life or being driven by life's currents wherever they may be going in that particular moment. These are good things to have, but we also have to learn how to hold them loosely because sometimes things change. And sometimes, in a glorious way, God will interrupt our plans and show us something even greater. And so as we look at where we want to be five years from now, I think the important thing is to know what kind of person we want to become. Because as as I make that decision today, that's going to influence the choices that I make. That's going to determine the habits that I'm going to make or break this next week. Because those actions, those choices, those decisions are going to directly shape who I become five years from now. And that principle is at work in the church as well, just as it's at work in our individual lives. We have more say in that aspect of who we are going to become. We have more influence in how that's going to turn out than we do any other outcome that we're going to experience. So those choices have to be made with intentionality. Because we together are becoming the church that Jesus is building. And that means that we're a work in progress. Sometimes that can get a little bit messy. This summer, as we were working with the the college students, meeting with the college students and young adults, uh, we we do this thing called summer sessions where we get together and uh, deal with hard questions, talk about difficult topics that our our 20-somethings are wrestling with. And uh, this summer, our, our theme was loving the church even when the church is hard to love. And we talked about issues like church scandals, Things that pop up in the media and that uh, cause people to think that, you know, the church is just full of hypocrites. We talked about how to respond to those kind of things. We, we talked about personal issues like hurt that's been experienced in the church or, or abuse that's been suffered at the hands of others. We talked about feelings of betrayal that have happened within the church setting. And all of these things, while they're difficult to talk about, They need to be addressed because they become barriers preventing us from being able to trust others and love others the way that we ought to. These conversations, they they are hard. They're, they're, They're difficult. But I believe that they're the only way to both identify problems and to learn how to be a part of the solution. 
Because we're not standing outside the church talking about it like it's something else. We're standing within it knowing that we are the church. We are the people of God. And it's part of our calling. It's part of our design that Jesus is building that we become part of the solution. And so that's been our challenge. And it's vital that we navigate these issues together, not in isolation. Because when we get alone, that's when the devil begins to creep in and plant those, those lies in our minds and in our hearts. All of this is just a part of how we are built together. I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Uh, verses 19 and 22, where he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the words that Paul uses here that reflects that idea that we are being built together, we're being joined together, and Jesus is the one who is doing the building. And Jesus, as he builds his church, he gives us a vision for what the church will one day look like. As we read through the New Testament, we find these marks, these distinctive characteristics that show us what Jesus desires for his church to look like. This is what the church of the future is going to be. Our decision then is how do we become people who look like that church? But before we get into that, what are these distinctive marks? What does Jesus desire for his church to look like. Well, this isn't an exhaustive list, but I think it's four critical marks that Jesus makes known uh, to the Apostle John. So we see some of them in his gospel and some in the book of Revelation. And the first mark that we see is that Jesus desires a church marked by love. In John chapter 13, verses uh, 34 and 35, Jesus says this to his disciples, a, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, I think that this mark is not a surprise. Uh, Jesus talks so much about love throughout the Gospels, teaching his, his listeners to love God and, and to love our neighbors. And then he goes on to define neighbor, and it's pretty much everyone. Uh, if you love your neighbor, if you go to Jesus and say, oh yeah, who is my neighbor? That's not going to end well for you. Um, he's going to say, everyone you see around you, that's, that, that's your neighbor. And he also says, and when you have enemies, when there's people who hate you, when there's people who curse you, Love them. Love your enemies. We can't do that on our own. That's why this is a distinctive mark of the church. That kind of love can only come through being with Jesus, letting him fill us with his love, letting him transform us so that we can express that love. 
in a way that, that has an eternal impact. And as we look at all the times that Jesus talks about love, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by what Francis Schaeffer, a Christian author and cultural apologist, and some would even say uh, someone who was prophetic, uh, what he said about this passage in John. See, he observed that Jesus, when he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciple. That Jesus is giving the world the right to judge us. He is giving the world a criteria to evaluate whether we are truly followers of Jesus. He's allowing the world to say, if, if we don't see love in your life, we don't have to pay attention to anything you say. That's a scary thought. But Jesus is emphasizing this command that, that he left us with, that we should love just as he loves. It's what he desires for his church. This is the vision of what the church should look like. And maybe Jesus commanded this so often because it's not easy, because we need his help. We need his presence. We need his spirit to help us to do that. But it's so crucial because all people will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. And it all starts there. It all starts with love. All the other marks, once love is in place, all the other marks, they, they begin to fall in place as well. And so the second mark I'd like us to look at is that Jesus desires a church marked by unity. And staying in John's gospel, we, we move down to chapter 17, and this is the high priestly prayer that Jesus is praying over his disciples. And so he's speaking to the Father, and he says, I am no longer in the world. He's literally just hours away from being crucified. He says, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And then we go down to verse 20 where Jesus says, and I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. This is really cool because this is one of the times in the gospel when Jesus is praying for us and praying that we who have come to know him through the words of the apostles that we would grow and live in unity with one another. And this unity that the Bible speaks about, it's not, it's not a uniformity. It's not a superficial um, falling in line, everyone dressing the same and talking the same and walking the same. It's not that, that outward show of, of uniformity. It doesn't mean that we lose our unique identities our ways of, of thinking or our gifts or skills. It, it doesn't mean that we just become clones of one another. The prayer that, that's happening here, it's, it's from the Son to the Father. And Jesus is saying we are one, yet there's also distinctions that are in place. The thing with unity, though, is that differences do not become a point of division. 
that we are united by something deeper at the core of who we are. And for Christians, that's our devotion to Jesus Christ. Because he is the Lord over us. He is the one who lives inside of us. We're able to have unity even as we hold on to our distinctiveness as individuals living and fulfilling the purposes that God has created us for. Unity in a lot of ways can be thought about uh, in, in, in the manner that healthy families uh, relate to one another. And in healthy families, um, there's still disagreements. There, there's still conversations that happen. There's still times when uh, people get into arguments with one another. If you have siblings, you know there are even times that the fists come out. Now, I'm not endorsing that. I'm just observing reality. But in healthy families, love is always present. Issues are worked through. Disagreements are brought together so that they can be resolved, so that reconciliation can happen and that the bonds of the family can be strengthened. And in healthy families, uh, the, the members know that when, when, when push comes to shove, uh, at the end of the day, that their family members have their back, that they belong, that they support one another, and that they love one another. But here's the thing, though. Unity... It means dealing with reality because those disagreements do pop up. Those conflicts can arise. And it doesn't help to pretend like unity is happening whenever there's division creeping in under the surface. Those hurts, those offenses, those conflicts have to be dealt with so that unity can be preserved. Unity works with reality. It demands we address hurts in our communities and we help those who have been wounded so that they can heal. Unity doesn't just ignore problems or offenses. It doesn't pretend like they don't exist or act like they're just going to resolve themselves over time. It demands action and sometimes that action is expressed through repentance and forgiveness. A very public way of showing the grace that Jesus has given us and that we can then extend to one another. Unity involves seeking the good of the other person for the glory of Jesus. Not for my glory. Not so that I can be seen as somebody who did what was good or, or right or praiseworthy, but so that Jesus, the one that we are united around, that he can be glorified. And a third mark that's closely related to unity is the mark of diversity. And here we, we move from John's gospel to John's vision that's recorded in the book of Revelation. I, I love this passage in Revelation chapter 7, uh, verses 9 and 10, where John writes that after this I looked and Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
John gets this glimpse of a heavenly worship service, something that the church is going to look like on the other side of eternity. This is a, 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 a glimpse of what Jesus is building whenever it's begun to come to its completion. And while John is, is having this vision of heaven, and there's all of these otherworldly sights and sounds that, that are filling his senses, the thing that stands out to him is the makeup of the people, the unnumberable crowd that's gathered around worshiping Jesus, united in their praise, but representing every nation, every tribe, every tongue, the diversity that Jesus desires for his church to embody is seen here. Jesus desires that diversity, and just like unity, this goes beyond a superficial level. It's not just based on appearance or what we look like. It means that we welcome people from all social, economic, ethnic, national, and cultural backgrounds, that we become a church where people from no matter where they come from, they can, they can be here and encounter Jesus Christ. That's what diversity looks like. When we grow into a church marked by diversity, we learn more about how big God is. We discover insights about God that our own culture often blinds us to. We think about the, the 23rd Psalm. Many of us here have, have heard that before. A good number of us have probably memorized that psalm. It begins with the words, the Lord is my shepherd. And as Americans living in a city in the 21st century, we would never come up with that analogy for God. You know, we, we might come up with something like, you know, God is my shift supervisor. I don't know. It would be really bad. Our poetry is not as beautiful as King David's was. But we need the voice of someone far removed from us, a shepherd, a young man who was out in the wilderness thousands of miles and thousands of years removed from, from where we are right now so that we could see this aspect of who God is. We wouldn't have any trouble coming up with an image of God, seeing him as a great and powerful king or a conqueror. But whenever it comes to seeing God as a strong and compassionate shepherd, we need help. We need voices from other cultures who can tell us who God is so that our view of God can grow, that we can see him as he truly is. As people from all nations and tribes and tongues become part of the church, our view of God gets bigger. It gets more complete. It gets more accurate. Our theology becomes more robust. Our worship grows more expressive. And we can experience the ways that different skills, different experiences, different understandings about the world and about God and how they relate to each other, all of these differences allow the body of Christ to function with different 
gifts and different giftings and skills and strengths so that all of us can be edified, so that all of us can be encouraged in ways that we didn't even know we needed it, and so that the whole church can be built up in the way that Jesus wants us to be built. And in John's vision, we also see that Jesus desires a church marked by holiness. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, John records this image. He says, let us rejoice and exult and give Jesus the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, we we see this. John just kind of throws this image out there, and it's like, the bride has come. And we're like, well, okay, but who's the bride? Uh, So I'm going to look at Ephesians, where Paul helps us out with that. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So we see that connection between the church and a wife or a bride. And he says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And that captures the imagery that John records from his vision and revelation. So the bride that Jesus takes is his church. And one of the defining marks that we see there is the blameless, pure holiness of his church. Now, Jesus makes us holy. It says it there in Ephesians, that he's washed his church clean. He is the source of our holiness. But of the four terms that I've mentioned today, holiness is probably the one with the widest range of interpretation. (laughs) And your understanding of holiness, it might depend on where you grew up, or when you grew up, um, you know, we all know that roller skates are not holy, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, what? We'll talk later. Um, college students, I'll, I'll fill you in. Um, but there, there's a lot of understandings about holiness that kind of developed over, over the years and over the decades. And so let's take a moment and see what Scripture says about holiness. Now, the the Hebrew and Greek words that were translated as holy, they they tended to refer to to objects that were set apart for a special or a sacred use. So the temple was holy, and all of the things in the temple were holy. They were only to be used to worship God. But God also is holy. And God is not set apart for a special use. We don't use God. Uh, that, That doesn't work. And God is holy, and he calls his people to be holy just as he is holy. And in this sense, it has this idea of moral purity or perfection. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, says you should be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's going along with that idea of what holiness is. So holiness means, uh, it's often thought that holiness means avoiding sin or not being tainted by evil. And it does, but that's not the full picture. 
See, in Revelation 19, verse 8, when John speaks about the, the, the clothing, the bright and pure clothing that the bride is wearing, he says that it is the righteous deeds of the saints. These are actions that promote righteousness, which is a term that's also connected to justice for other people. It's not just about avoiding the things that are bad. It's about intentionally acting in ways that are good. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about being perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Those words followed his teaching that we should love our enemies and do good for others. So holiness isn't just the absence of sin. It's the intentional pursuit of rightness for others. And both of these ideas are presented in Leviticus 19. I'm going all the way back to the Old Testament now. And this, I love this, this chapter because it begins with this phrase. It gets quoted a lot in the New Testament. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That's where it, it comes from. And then God goes on to give commandments uh, to, to his people about moral purity. And he also repeats some of the Ten Commandments, telling them, do not lie and do not steal. Honor your father and your mother. And he goes on in verse 18 to say, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what Jesus quoted when he was asked, what's the great com greatest commandment? First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. And he was hyperlinking back to this chapter in Leviticus that talks about the ways that love should be expressed so Jesus, whenever he quoted this, this verse, it also speaks to our need for unity, telling us not to hold grudges or seek revenge. And then the, the chapter goes on to talk about ways that we are to take care of the poor, that we're to take care of widows and orphans, those who need help among us. That's what it looks like to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what it looks like to be holy as God is holy. And then in verse 34, God says this, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I love this chapter because it begins with a call to holiness, it includes commands for unity and for love. And it ends with a picture of diversity. These are the marks God wants for his people. These are not new inventions. This has been a part of God's vision for his people from the beginning. This is what Jesus is building his church into. So the question for us is how can we become people? who look more and more like the church of the future. This is what the church of the future is going to look like.
how do I become a person who also looks like that? How do I become a person who loves well, who seeks unity, who through hospitality welcomes diversity, who lives an active, passionate life of holiness, seeking ways to serve others? Well, let's remember that it is Jesus who builds our church. And all four of these marks are impossible for us to just conjure up on our own. So the first way that we become that kind of person is by spending extravagant time with Jesus. Spending time in his presence. Worshiping him, praying to him, listening to him. Reading the scriptures that have the the, the teachings of Jesus and that show us the character of who God is and letting the Holy Spirit work in us. Because on our own, the best that we can do is innovation. We can come up with new and maybe better, maybe more efficient ways of doing all the things that we used to do. But when it comes to loving our enemies, we need transformation. And we can't do that on our own. It's the Holy Spirit working in us, making us a new creation. That only happens whenever we encounter Jesus. We've got to spend extravagant time with him so that he can make all things new. The second is that we need to be discerning about our discipleship. Now what I mean by this is that everything that we engage with, people, media, uh, whatever it might be, it has a forming effect on our lives. It's either making us be more like Jesus or making us be more like something else. That is not Jesus. And I'm not saying this in an alarmist way, you know, that like, oh, you know, the only thing you should ever do is read your Bible. Or the only thing you should ever watch is a video of someone reading their Bible. You know, that's not what I mean by that. But we have to be aware that what we take in has a forming effect on who we are. So that we're not passively taking it in. There's a a, a brilliant author and theologian named Caitlin Shess. And she gave these questions that we should ask whenever we're looking at, at what uh, we're, we're taking in, what, what media we're consuming. And this can be entertainment, this can be uh, movies or music, this can be news channels, this can be Facebook or Instagram, uh, whatever it is that we're looking at, whatever we're taking in. These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. What is this thing, what is it asking me to love? Is it asking me to love possessions or power or people or God? What is it turning my heart toward? What is this asking me to love? The second question is, who is it asking me to fear or hate? And that's a trick question because if the answer to that is anyone, it's bad. We're not to hate anyone. Even our enemies we are called to love, right? So who is this asking me to fear or hate? The third question is, what kind of good life is this describing? What is this telling me is the ultimate thing that I should be living for and pursuing? What picture of the good life does this put in front of my eyes? And that one can be difficult sometimes. Esther and I, uh, the college students know, we, we, we have something that we like to call Disney theology. 
I'm not teaching Disney theology. I'm identifying Disney theology. Um, And what we mean by this is that whenever you look at the classic Disney movies, it always gave a picture of what the good life would be. It was always you find your Prince Charming and you get married and you live happily ever after. And like, apparently when you get married, that's the end. Like, (laughs) nothing ever happens after that. And that's not true. Like, none of that is true. Like, you, 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 it is possible to live a good life with Christ, even if you don't get married. It is possible to live a fulfilled, whole, full life, doing whatever God has called you to do, even if you don't get married. And then if you do get married, there's still work involved. We, we put in effort to make our families whole and healthy and growing so that they can be places where our families flourish. It doesn't just all happen. We have to be aware, even as something as seemingly innocent as retro cartoons, that they're not shaping us to pursue a good life that God doesn't intend for us or a good life that doesn't exist in reality. Does that make sense? So we can ask these questions, what is this teaching me to love? Who is this teaching me to hate or fear? What is the picture of the good life that this is painting for me? And then finally, how can I be conscious of those things so that I recognize when they don't line up with what Scripture tells me. Be discerning about discipleship. Be discerning about what's forming us. And then last, we let love drive us. Let love be the motivator. Let love be what shapes our actions. Uh, I mentioned earlier, it all starts with love. Love is what makes the other marks possible. And we have to be willing whenever we meet with other people, when we're spending time with others, to lay aside our agendas or our timetables so that we can love through the messiness of life. If people are dealing with struggles, we meet with them and help them heal. And sometimes that takes longer than we would like it to but we stay with them, we nurture them, we help them grow in their connection to Jesus. We spend time being present with others, listening so that we can understand. We attend to people's pain and we help them find healing so that they can flourish and be all that Jesus intends for them to be, that they can be built up as part of his church. Everything starts with love and Like this message, everything ends with love. And love infuses everything in between. It is the mark of the church that Jesus is building. I mentioned that this summer, as we talked with students, we talked about how do we love the church in those moments when it's really hard to. And Those conversations, they were enriching, but they weren't easy. They helped us to identify things that that we've got to give attention to as individuals and as, as a group together. But each week we ended with this question. 
What is something, what is something in the church that is giving you hope? What is something that's making it a little bit easier to love? What is something that's making you want to stay? Let's talk about those things too. Because those are the glimpses of grace. Those are the glimpses where we see Jesus building his church. And there's so much that, that, that is good. There's so much that is filled with love, that's promoting unity, that's welcoming diversity, that's helping us grow in holiness. And we need, we need to pay attention. We need to rejoice in those moments because there's plenty of times for us to mourn with those who mourn. And we got to do that well as well. So as we wrap up today, I'm going to pray, and then I just want to open these altars. If you want to make a statement today of just saying, Lord, I want, I want to become, I want to become a person who looks like what you're building the church into. I want to become a person who looks like the church of the future that you are building, and I need your help to make it happen. If you want to pray, Lord, I need you to help me love. And you may even have specific names in that prayer request. But Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need you to help me promote unity through repenting of something I did or through forgiving somebody who hurt me, through working through tough issues so that healing can happen. Lord, I want to be a person who practices hospitality to such a rich extent that I just welcome diversity in my life in my home, in my friend circle, that, that I welcome those that, Lord, are quite different from me. I want to be someone who looks like your church. Or, Lord, I need help pursuing holiness. There's sin that I need to get rid of, or there are good things that I just need help to pursue. I want to invite you to come up here today and just spend time practicing spending extravagant time with Jesus. It doesn't stop here, but it can begin here. Would you stand with me?